You are listening to Supporting Supporters, a Change to Chill podcast. This is a free mental well-being resource offered by Alina Health. My name is Tanya Freeman. I'm a licensed psychologist and regional lead psychologist with Alina Health. These podcast episodes are aimed with the goal of providing quick, tangible resources and information from Alina Health mental health providers on a range of mental health topics relevant to day-to-day lives of the listener. We invite you to join us in any way you please, whether you sit back and kick your feet up, or as you engage in movement, your daily commute, or as you prepare for your day. However you choose to join us, we welcome you and we honor your time. Hi, and thanks for listening today. My name is David Nathan, and I'm a licensed psychologist. I work for Alina Health, and I primarily work with children, teens, and men on a wide range of issues. Other than myself, everyone in my family is a teacher, including both of my parents and my twin sister. Working in the education system is extremely demanding, but so crucial. Thank you for what you do every day. You are making the world a better place. I hope this is helpful for you. Today, I'm going to talk about five doable things that can improve our quality of life, both with our bodies and our minds. And the good news is that all of these things are free. They are what I consider to be the bedrock of mental health. Exercise, a healthy diet, good sleep, self-care, and self-compassion. I know these concepts are not new, but perhaps I can offer a different approach to prioritize these core concepts. Exercise, eating well, getting good sleep, self-care, and engaging in self-compassion are not just nice things to do. They impact everything about us. And I recognize that you have probably heard everything or almost everything I'm about to say, and that's okay. Sometimes we need to hear good messages many times before we act on them. Or perhaps you have been able to make some small changes in the past and are ready to hear about possible next steps. There is an entire dynamic in psychology called the trans-theoretical model, or the stages of change, which I won't go into detail here, but it presents a way of understanding the steps needed for someone to make changes in their life. I encourage you to Google the trans-theoretical model if you're interested in more information. According to the model, there are six stages that we go through when we want to make changes in our lives. The first stage takes place when we are not even thinking about making a change. The second is considering a change that someone might want to do, and so on. The point is, the trans-theoretical model describes what we all know. Making big changes in our lives, or even small ones, is not as easy as flipping a switch. It is a process that takes time and energy, and sometimes it takes a lot of time and energy. Today's podcast isn't about bringing you from step one to step six, which is sustaining change. This podcast is about helping someone who is in stage one or stage two make incremental improvements to sustain a happier, healthier life. You can decide when and how you want to use this information. I also want to say that I do not promote one approach over another. I think these are each parts of keeping ourselves mentally and physically healthy, and there are other approaches too. Some people may benefit from medications that reduce symptoms of anxiety and depression. Some people may benefit from talk therapy, and there are other approaches that I'm not going to discuss here today. I like an all-of-the-above method when it comes to dealing with mental and physical health concerns. The more methods we have to take care of ourselves, the better off we are going to be. One thing. 
I did say that making change in life takes time and energy before, and this is very true. If you have some significant new difficulties going on in your life, a marriage, a divorce, a new child, a new job, moving, the loss of a loved one, etc., this is not the time to try and make a change of any kind in your life unless you absolutely need to. We don't learn how to swim by tying weights around our wrists or ankles. If you want to make changes in your life, you should do it when your life is as sustainable and comfortable as possible. Okay, let's discuss exercising. First-line anxiety and depression medications, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, and serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, SNRIs, have been around for decades. There are lots and lots of studies on them, and it is pretty clear that for most people, SSRIs and SNRIs are really helpful with reducing symptoms of anxiety and depression. There's one treatment that pharmaceutical corporations never test their medications against. Only independent researchers do studies like this. They compare the effectiveness of medications against exercise. And I don't mean one pill a day against hours and hours a day of exercise. I mean comparing the standard dose of medication every day to 30 minutes of exercise three to five times per week. According to mountains and mountains of published research that comes from universities and other independent sources, not the pharmaceutical companies, medication is very effective at treating anxiety and depression. And according to mountains and mountains of other research, exercising for 30 minutes three to five times a week is also just as beneficial as the benefit from those frontline medications. Like I said before, I'm not promoting one approach over another, and medication does have a clear benefit in treating anxiety and depression symptoms. But like I said, I do like an all-of-the-above approach, and it is worth noting that exercise makes a big difference. We don't have to do one or the other. This can be a yes-and situation. There are costs associated with exercise. It takes time. There's no way around that. Compared with taking a medication in the morning, there's a much higher time commitment. It is also true that there are some unique benefits that come from exercise. If you or someone you know has ever gone on an SSRI or an SNRI, you know that it takes a long time, sometimes several weeks, to see a benefit. And if somebody wants to go off their medication, they need to taper their medication down over the course of several weeks. If they run out of medication, they are stuck. With exercise, the benefits are much more immediate and they accumulate with persistent activity. Exercise doesn't just improve anxiety and depression symptoms. It helps sustain longer attention, think more carefully, it helps us feel more confident. Jogging, biking, skiing, swimming, strength training, all of them help. Dancing, karate classes, dodgeball league, whatever floats your boat, they all help. Walking up and down stairs at your house or school also works. You don't need to buy anything, and you don't need to have a membership at any club. If you don't have weights, you can use water bottles, milk jugs, or canned beans. Again, I want to make it clear that I am not against using medication for the treatment of mental health concerns. I have seen medication change people's lives, and exercise can make a huge difference too. Next point, sleep. I'm sure you know that Americans get far less sleep than they should. In grad school, we had a lecture from a sleep expert from the University of Minnesota. Someone asked, how long should people sleep? The answer is, when you can wake up without first using an alarm. I don't know about you, 
but I'm not sure I have ever woken up without an alarm on a school or work day since I was in fifth or sixth grade, so I'm probably guilty of not getting enough sleep. In my defense, I do get about eight hours of sleep every workday. There's a reason we tell people that they need to get a good night's sleep before they take the SATs or the ACTs. In my work, I conduct ADHD and ASD assessments routinely, and one of the things I tell my patients and their families is to make sure the patient has a full night of sleep before testing. If someone has not gotten enough sleep, I'm going to know about it about 90 seconds into the testing session, if not sooner, and I'm going to have them reschedule the testing. If you don't have enough sleep, your mind operates like you have lost several points off of your IQ. I haven't seen a specific study on this, but I suspect if someone gets several hours less sleep than they need, their effective IQ is going to go down between 10 and 20 points the next day. The less sleep we get, the worse our prefrontal cortex works. The effects of sleep loss are cumulative. If we don't get enough sleep for several days, we are going to be worse off than if we just had one night of little sleep. The less sleep we get, the more impressionable we are. If we lose enough sleep, our inhibitions vanish, not unlike having too much alcohol. We become extremely impulsive, our coordination evaporates, and on top of this, we feel exhausted. There are a couple of reasons we don't get enough sleep. It might be because we have a new baby in the house. My wife and I have twins who are now nine, and the first several months were rough. It might be because our jobs create an unusual sleep schedules, or we need to have two to three jobs to pay for our life expenses, or because we're watching screens to wind down. Difficulties with sleep could be due to consuming caffeine too late in the day for your body and mind, or it could be we're having difficulties with anxiety, and instead of falling asleep, our mind spirals during the night, creating obstacles to the relaxation needed to fall asleep or it could be a combination. For sleep difficulties that are due to anxiety, the best way to deal with this is getting treatment for the anxiety. Exercise, therapy, self-care, reducing caffeine intake, and reducing or eliminating screens, or using medications, or other strategies can help with this. If difficulty sleeping are due to our own behavior, such as watching screens before trying to go to sleep, then it's a matter of adjusting our evening routines. If we are doing jobs so late that we don't have enough time for sleep, it's worth asking yourself about other options available to you. We are very busy people in 2022. If you have the means, it's okay to see what areas of your life can be outsourced. You do not have to do it all. If you can, ask family members or friends or babysitters to watch your children or hire a house cleaner. Perhaps investigate grocery or meal delivery services if that saves you time. Sometimes there's a self-imposed expectation that you should be able to do it all, but in 2022, this is simply not reasonable. One thing I see over and over again is that mothers are the backstops for our society. When a problem in our community or in our culture arises and no one else is able to or is interested in taking care of it, the problem tends to fall into the laps of mothers. And yes, this isn't true of all moms. And yes, there's some absolutely fantastic fathers out there, no question but I see this every day in my work and the research backs this up. On average, moms do more works than dads or non-moms. We need to be realistic about what we can and cannot accomplish. If the doers are getting burned out, our kids, families, and coworkers are in big trouble. Being overworked and overwhelmed is not an issue unique to mothers, but it is an important issue related to mothers and it is important that this issue is acknowledged. When we were younger, we had time but no money. As we get older, we have more money and less time. 
It is worth considering spending some money to free up some of the time so you have more time to rest and enjoy yourself and your families. If none of these options work for you, it may be worth thinking about how many jobs you can really fit into your life. We have a time and an energy budget, just like we have a financial budget. We are taught from an early age how to be thoughtful about living within our means. It is important to live within our time and energy means as well. I would love to buy and drive a Maserati, but that isn't in my budget. If you are doing so many jobs that you aren't getting enough sleep, it might be worth considering whether or not you actually have the time and energy budget to do all these jobs. Some jobs we need to do, but it's worth thinking along the lines of, I need to be getting ready for bed by nine. What jobs do I need to do first to make sure they are done by bedtime? Jobs that can't be finished before bedtime need to wait. You and your sleep are more important than the laundry. If you are looking at screens, think about substituting reading books or magazines or playing card games or doing crossword puzzles or sudokus or other low-intensity, non-screen calming activities before bed. We all know that blue lights make our brains think it's daytime and then it's time to get up and at them. Or maybe you're really good at putting the phone down, but then you get a ding of a text and you feel like you should answer. It's okay to have an internal policy of no screen time after a certain time unless it's an emergency. One option is to keep your cell phone charger far from your bed so you are not tempted to respond to a notification. Another culprit is caffeine. Even if you feel like you are not sensitive to caffeine, if you are consuming caffeine after lunchtime, try cutting that out for a few days and see how things go. In my experience, caffeine and screens account for a large amount of difficulty sleeping and tend to be some of the easiest issues to address. If you find yourself waking up late at night and can't fall back to sleep in a few minutes, it's important to get out of bed and do something quiet and relaxing, such as reading a book or pet your dog or your cat. Avoid using screens. Our bodies can become habituated to not sleeping when we are in bed. I had a professor at the University of St. Thomas who told us when it comes to beds, they should be used for two things, sleep and sex. If our body and mind get used to being in bed and not sleeping, it can be harder for us to fall asleep in bed when we really want to. A good cutoff point for when to get out of bed is when you notice you've been trying to sleep for 10 minutes. At that point, it's time to get out of bed and do something calming. When you're feeling more tired, try going back to bed. This is hard, especially in winter when our beds are so cozy, but sleep is worth it. Okay, let's talk about food. When we eat, the food we ingest is digested by acids and enzymes in our stomachs makes the building blocks for our body, including our brain. When we eat proteins, our body turns them into amino acids. Amino acids are used to fix broken cells in our body and to make new ones. If we don't have enough protein, it's harder for us to heal from injuries or fight off illness. Carbohydrates are turned into fast energy in our body. Fats are turned into fatty acids, which are used to build cells. They also help certain vitamins, such as vitamin A, D, E, and K move through our body. Fat can provide us with a backup source of energy. It can also protect our internal organs from injury. Fat also makes up 60% of our brain tissue. Vitamins help keep us sharp. They strengthen our eyesight, help keep our skin clear, and make our nails and hair shinier. Minerals help manage processes in our body, like building strong bones and teeth, turning food into energy, in managing the fluids inside and outside the cells of our body. And water is critical. Our bodies are about 66% water. Water also helps transport vitamins C, 
B vitamins, and folic acid around our body. When we eat a balanced diet, we have a good mix of these nutrients. When we don't have that variety, or if we do not ingest nutritious foods, our body and our minds are going to suffer. If we don't get enough veggies or fruit, we are not going to digest food well, and our stomachs and GI tracts in general are not going to be as healthy. We are going to be at increased risk for all kinds of injuries and sicknesses related to these systems. If we don't get enough vitamins and minerals, our minds and our bodies are going to be dragging. Another side effect of not having a healthy diet is that we are going to feel more depressed. I'm not saying you shouldn't drink soda or eat cookies, but it's really important that we get a full range of foods that we need to keep our bodies going. I work at a clinic with many medical doctors and nurses, and we eat in a shared break room. Doctors and nurses tend to have extremely healthy, well-balanced lunches because they know the long-term consequences of the opposite. If you are interested to learn how to cook healthy and inexpensive meals, there is a treasure trove of websites, podcasts, YouTube videos, and other resources out there to teach you, and they are free to access. Eating well makes a difference in how we think and feel. When we don't get the things we need, our body ages faster. We are more likely to experience injuries and illnesses, and we are going to have a harder time recovering from them. Our mind in general is not going to function as well. Our senses will be less astute and we're more likely to experience mental illness. When we don't get what we need, we don't drop dead immediately, but the experience of being alive becomes much less enjoyable. We generally have a tremendous amount of control over what we eat. And I'm not saying we can't have delicious snacks, but if we make sure that we get the fuel that we need, our body and our mind are going to run and feel much better. Fast food is cheap and easy, and junk food can be a great short-lasting pick-me-up when we are feeling down. But there is a price besides the price we pay at the register when we fill up on empty calories. It's worth including that when we think about our meal planning. The penultimate topic today is self-care. Self-care is activities that help us feel better. I think there are two requirements for what constitutes self-care. The first is self-care is something that makes us feel joy. This is going to be different for each person. For some people, it's spending time with certain friends. For other people, it's gardening. For someone else, it might be cooking. That brings us to our second requirement of self-care. Whatever it is, self-care leaves us feeling better than we did before we did it. We have a time and an energy budget. When we engage in self-care, we are putting money into the energy part of that account. In some of my previous podcasts, I've discussed how one way to look at the mind is like a cell phone battery. When we are fully charged, we handle things pretty well. But every day, we experience things that take energy. Boring tasks, activities outside of our comfort zone, dealing with difficult people. Whatever uses us up, self-care is the process that helps us recover from those difficult situations. The second requirement for self-care, that the activity leads us to feel better when we're finished than we were when we started, is why various addictive behaviors, such as drug or alcohol use, video game use, gambling, or other similar activities do not count as self-care when they are addictions. Used in moderation, these things can make us feel better. They might even make us feel great. But when we become addicted to them, they no longer make us feel better. They anesthetize us while we use them. People use them when they're feeling crummy, and they forget how bad they feel while they are engaged with those activities. But when they are done, the effect wears off, and we're right back where we were when we started. 
we may even be worse off than we were. I have discussed self-care in detail in some of my other podcasts. If you haven't heard them and want to learn more about this, I highly recommend either googling the topic or listening to those podcasts. I think it's important for everyone to have 8 to 12 activities that they really enjoy so they can use them when they are feeling down. Knowing your preferred activities and having a variety of them so you have backups when one or a few of them aren't available is an extremely helpful life strategy. My last topic is self-compassion, and this is actually something added during the editing process of this podcast while I was working on the script because it really deserves to be mentioned. We are all working very, very hard, teachers especially. It is very easy to feel pretty angry at ourselves when we are burned out. Becoming upset at oneself is a common human reaction to being overwhelmed. And we can really feel sure that there's something truly wrong with us, that we are not good enough, or that we have done something wrong and the bad things in our life are our proper consequences, or that we are not trying hard enough. All of these examples of thoughts are garbage. Absolutely none of them are true, and they're not worth buying into. These are common symptoms that the human mind experiences when faced with loss or disappointment or overwhelm or other forms of pain. A much better, healthier, and more accurate way of looking at these situations is that these are symptoms of the bad experience, and actually we are doing the best that we can, that we are worthy, and we should give ourselves forgiveness. In the context of psychology, this approach is called self-compassion. My wife is a family practice doctor, and she calls it something else, grace. In the evening, when my wife and I discuss our days, she often tells me how she told her patients that day to give themselves grace, to be kind and forgiving to themselves, just as they would be kind and forgiving to others. This is a very healthy, very important frame of mind and a state of being to hold. When the thoughts that we are bad, awful, less than, broken, come, when we feel negatively towards ourselves, any choices we make based on that frame of mind are going to make the situation worse. I saw a clever meme recently that said, if beating myself up made me better, I should be pretty amazing by now. Our minds beating up on ourselves is something minds do when they are feeling down. It isn't helpful. It's like allergies. Our bodies are overreacting to something that's actually pretty unimportant. Those negative thoughts and feelings are just bad reactions. It is important to know that. Self-compassion, grace, leads us to healing. It may take significant time to feel better, but choices and actions made from a place of self-compassion, from a place of grace, always go in a positive, healing direction. If we can't get everything done, it's because we are mortal and we have limited energy. If we make a mistake, it's because we thought we were doing it the right way at the time. If we had known how it was going to turn out, we would have made a different choice. We can't hold ourselves to a higher standard than we hold other people to. If your good friend made the same mistake or the same decision, how would you treat them? What would you say to them? I suspect that you would be kind and supportive. You deserve to treat yourself the same way that you would treat a friend. Negative thoughts can be automatic. They can be the way our mind automatically responds to a painful situation. But just because we have negative thoughts and feelings of self-blame, does not make those ideas and feelings accurate ways to understand the situation. Self-compassion, grace, 
This is a healthy way to respond when those unhelpful feelings show up. You, me, all of us deserve it. Well, that is my spiel on nutrition, exercise, sleep, self-care, and self-compassion. I bet every few weeks I have a new patient who's a teenage guy whose diet consists of frozen pizza and Mountain Dew, who stays up playing video games until 3 in the morning on school nights. The patient and his parents tell me that he's depressed, he isn't doing well in school, he feels tired all the time and can't sleep, and that he feels gross. Often these patients are caught in a vicious cycle. Something or many things are happening in their lives that make them feel bad. They start engaging in activities that they hope will make them feel better, but these activities actually leave them feeling worse than they were to begin with. The first thing we discuss is how are we going to address the fundamental needs that we talked about today. We may spend the first few sessions discussing ways to adjust behavior. I'll offer support and guidance as the patient makes progress in these cases. Only after some sort of foundation is established can we begin to address any other mental health concerns. I have had cases where after a few weeks of foundation adjustment, the patient and their family report significant improvement and they decide that they don't have any other concerns to be addressed at the time. Nutrition, sleep, exercise, self-care, and self-compassion are absolutely huge. If we can manage those, we can actually enter into a virtuous cycle where we make a choice that leads us to feel better and make more choices that help us to feel even better than that. When we have a healthy amount of sleep, exercise, self-care, and healthy diet, we improve our physical and mental health and reduce the risk of things going badly. We rebound faster when life goes awry. If we are lucky, we are going to live for a long time and we probably have decades of life left. Managing these fundamentals help us to be our best selves and live our best lives. Just remember, if you want to make any changes in these areas of your life, remember that change is slow and that you need to have patience. Also remember we have a limited time and energy budget. If you can't do it now, you can always do it later. This is David Nathan, licensed psychologist with Alina Health. Thanks very much for listening today. Take care. On behalf of Alina Health and Change to Chill, we thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. We do hope you enjoyed this episode and we hope that you join us in other episodes covering even more interesting topics with mental health providers. As always, you can find the show notes and any accompanying research and tools at the Change to Chill website at www.changetochill.org. In health and in wellness, take care and see you next time.